This is episode 301 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can support our show, listen to over 150 additional episodes, and access a library of history and educator resources that coordinate with our show and Shakespeare's plays. Find all of these things when you sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life, and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Alan Kennedy, lecturer in Scottish history at the University of Dundee. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. You know, we talk a lot about the Elizabethan espionage regime, the Elizabethan intelligence regime. Like that thing leaks like a sieve. I think if you had, you know, if you had ears to listen and eyes to see in London, you would have been aware of what's happening. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Mary, Queen of Scots, and her son, James VI of Scotland, brought an urgency to England for sharing news about what was happening in Scotland. From 1580 onwards, the same years that Shakespeare was writing about Scotland in plays like Henry VI Part One, and later, of course, Macbeth, which is even called the Scottish play and features Scotland very prominently, the rate of news about events in Scotland being published in England had skyrocketed in England. This increase can be attributed to an expansion of news publications on a broader land Landscape, but events like Mary, Queen of Scots, and her future son, including rumors that Elizabeth I of England wanted to kidnap the baby James and England sending an army to Scotland, among other events, all added fuel to the fire of political relationships between the two countries, and it was written about furiously during this period. Shakespeare's works reflect this cultural moment when we see Lepidus and Antony and Cleopatra saying, here's more news from Act 1, Scene 4 in the early 1600s, along with over 300 additional references to news in Shakespeare's plays. Here with us today to share with us what news stories were the biggest headlines for this period, as well as what the surviving printed works of news tell us about the relationship between Scotland and England for Shakespeare's lifetime, is our guest and author of News from Scotland in England, 1559 to 1602 for the Huntington Library Quarterly, Amy Blakeway. Dr. Amy Blakeway is a senior lecturer in Scottish history at the University of St. Andrews, where she teaches and researches 16th century Scotland. She's the author of two books, Regency in 16th century Scotland and Parliament and Convention in the Personal Rule of James V of Scotland from 1528 to 1542. You can find links to Amy's work and her upcoming research publications, all packed into the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Amy. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hi, Cassidy. It's really lovely to be here. During Shakespeare's lifetime, Elizabeth I dispatched an army to Scotland, and some of the news printed about Scotland includes Elizabeth's own publication explaining her presence there. Amy, what was the official relationship between England and Scotland during the late 16th century and before the reign of James I of England? Had they been enemies and now they're allies, or were they frenemies kind of thing? 
You know, I think it's complicated is probably the one word response to that, Cassidy. As with many European neighbours in this period, there's a history of a lot of tension around territory, around control, but kind of bringing this into the 16th century, the thing I think it's really important to grasp is that in addition to a history of violence between the two countries, in 1503, the eldest daughter of King Henry VII, so this is Elizabeth I's aunt, marries the King of Scots, that's King James IV. And what that means is that the kings and queens of Scotland have a claim to the English succession. This is the Treaty of Perpetual Peace. And what that means is on top of this background of tension, on top of this background of violence, on top of this background of England claiming control over Scotland, claiming suzerainty over lordship over Scotland, we also have this dynastic connection. And so this means that as the century progresses, the monarchs of Scotland kind of become quite threatening to the kings and queens of England. Actually, if you think about Henry VIII, all of his problems, getting a legitimate heir, you know, if any of those schemes fail, it's going to be his nephew, King James V, who succeeds. So by the time Elizabeth comes to the throne, we're in a situation where we have a lot of people saying, well, you know, hey, Elizabeth's maybe not legitimate. Catholics don't think Elizabeth ought to be queen. And the alternative is her cousin, Mary, Queen of Scots. So we've got this whole dynastic situation. We've got this whole long background of violence. We've also got a really changing situation regarding religion. Because for a good chunk of the century, from the 1530s after Henry VIII's break with Rome, through until 1560, England is Protestant, Scotland's Catholic, more or less. Well, there's the reign of Mary Tudor, obviously, while um, England is also Catholic. We have a, a good chunk, kind of Henry VIII and Edward VI, where we have a Protestant England and a Catholic Scotland. And when Elizabeth comes to the throne, although Scotland has reformed, has become Protestant, there's then questions about kind of, well, what flavour Protestant are you? And England and Scotland aren't the same. So it's really, really complicated. There's an awful lot of stuff going on. And I mean, we could talk for hours about this, but, you know, but then there's also the fact to remember that there's the, the lived, there's this high politics. There's also the lived reality of being on the border. If you live close to the border with England and you're a Scot, you might well grind your corn in a mill that's in England. If you're close to the border in England and, you know, you're you're going across the border to Scotland to trade. So alongside all of this, there's this reality of kind of having to rub along together some of the time. So it's really complicated. It really changes. And one thing that I always try and say to people is that it changes from moment to moment and from person to person. And so thinking about the English being in either if it's a podcast, you can't see my square scare quotes listeners, but the English in scare quotes and their relationship with the Scots also in scare quotes, that's problematic. Like it's how does this particular person relate to that particular group of people? And I think when we start to break that down, even if we keep those big structural things about dynasty, about religion, about claims of overlordship in mind, actually it's really those individual relationships, those individual changing relationships that matter. Amy writes that Scotland was obviously a foreign country to England in Shakespeare's lifetime. Remember, this is pre-United Kingdom. But that the affairs of Scotland related to Mary, Queen of Scots, and James VI specifically were of urgent domestic significance in England. Amy's work cites the pamphlet Leicester's Commonwealth as an example of how Scotland's newsworthy events were of prime importance in England. Amy, explain this particular pamphlet to us. Who published it and was it actually banned in Scotland? 
Yeah, that's right, Cassidy. That's a really interesting one. So this is another thing that links a really good example of that dynastic tension that I was talking about. By the time we're thinking about um, Leicester's Commonwealth appearing, so this is the early 1580s, we've got a period where Mary, Queen of Scots, is imprisoned in England. Her son is on the throne in Scotland, and it looks like he's going to be Elizabeth's heir, right? It's unlikely she's going to have her own child. So what that means is that Scotland is in this weird position where it's obviously a foreign country, it's foreign news in England, but if the events and people of Scotland are of immediate importance. Unless Commonwealth is particularly interesting as a news pamphlet because of its form. It's not set in Scotland. It's not about events in Scotland. It claims to be a letter recording a conversation between two learned people in Cambridge being sent down to London. And they're talking about Elizabeth's favourite, the Earl of Leicester. As the pamphlet develops, however, we realise this isn't really just an attack on Lester with kind of a load of scurrilous fun stuff about, you know, oh, he's, you know, he's done this dreadful sexual thing. His wife's this dreadful person. This is actually an argument that Mary, Queen of Scots, ought to succeed Elizabeth or potentially even be queen instead of her. This is clearly something that's highly controversial. Elizabeth is really, really angry when she sees this. And there's a lot of secrecy around the author and exactly how it was published. Our best bet is there's multiple authors. But really, this is something where there's just not enough evidence to be absolutely sure. What we do know is that Elizabeth is angry. Mary's supporters on the continent are thrilled. You've got people writing to Philip of Spain saying this is a great book. But Elizabeth takes action by, yes, you're absolutely right, asking James VI if he will ban it in Scotland. And he agrees to do that because he feels that something that is negative about Elizabeth, even if it's positive about his mother, is somehow kind of tainting him with um, associations of trees and associations of disruption that he really doesn't want because he wants to secure a smooth succession from Elizabeth. So yeah, that's a fascinating piece in terms of bringing together lots of different things about how news can be packaged, pretending to be a letter reporting a conversation, through to how something that is allegedly about news and developments in England is really telling a story about Mary, Queen of Scots and the Scottish succession. And I think we should mention James's age at this time. He's quite young mm. when he's having this correspondence with Elizabeth, isn't he? Yeah, you're 100% right. And this is something that's really important to remember. So James is born in 1566, and he comes to the throne the following year when his mother is deposed. So by the early 1580s, James is really only kind of mid-teens. And historians are really, there's a lot of debate about when he actually starts to rule in his own right, because um, Obviously, when he's two, three, four, he's not ruling. We've got regents, people appointed to rule on his behalf. But by the mid-1580s, we are beginning to look at James asserting adult authority. And one thing that he's really keen on and emerges really early as part of his policy is this idea that he is king and he does have authority. And so issues such as the succession correspondence with Elizabeth get quite up on his radar quite quickly. What were the ways that Scottish news was published in England? Was it always printed works like this pamphlet or was there oral transmission sometimes relied upon for reporting events? And how exactly were they sending the information? Yeah, this is a really interesting question, Cassidy. Uh, it's a very complex news economy, as it were. The 
oral information you've alluded to is perhaps where to start because this is the kind of I think the thing we think about most instinctively in the pre-modern world. Rumors and connections and personal networks are absolutely key. The English have agents all over Scotland. They have them in the Scottish court. They've got kind of um, at the various points there are people who are more like spies. At various points there are official diplomats. At various points there are just Scots who are politically and religiously aligned with English aims and will send materials home. There's also more informal new stuff. All those connections I mentioned on the border, those women who are going to the market in Berwick-upon-Tweed are carrying news with them and they'll set rumours off and occasionally English officials will sort of haul them in. And you've also obviously got printed books, which, as you've said, are crossing the border. But what I think is maybe more important, or certain, I mean, importance is different, but in terms of more frequent, more regular, more bedded down into the information economy, the transmission of manuscripts things written by hand. Now, we tend to think maybe from a modern perspective, there's an assumption a manuscript is somehow private. That's something we really need to put away when we're thinking about the 16th century. Um, Letters are very often designed to be shown and read by multiple people. And you'll often see this in the addresses, um, or you say explicit instructions to show this to somebody, or alternatively explicit instructions, don't show this and burn it. So correspondence and the networks through which that throws is really key. But also manuscript pamphlets cross the border fairly regularly. These have got an advantage to print because they're quicker to produce. You can't get the mass number of copies, but the amount of time it takes to set up a press. Actually, if you just want kind of a dozen copies to go to the key people, manuscript can be quicker, can be more effective and can be cheaper as well. So there's manuscripts crossing the border also. And all these things kind of relate to each other. You've got the unofficial rumour, you've got the official diplomatic report, you've got the manuscript pamphlets, you've got then occasionally these printed publications. But they're all perhaps going through similar types of networks there. Well, were these printed works always sharing accurate information? I mean, you mentioned like at least three different sources there. I have to imagine mm. they were sometimes varied between each other. And I wonder how much of the news was about sharing actual facts versus spreading or changing propaganda type pieces. Yeah, so this is really interesting. So I think when we think about the word propaganda, we tend to think of that kind of being deliberately misleading and a deliberate lie. And obviously, some of the time it is. But more often, I think in this period, it's about inculcating a particular image or a particular helpful version of the truth. So there's kind of, I guess, two questions. Is this accurate? And is this then a separate question? Is this somebody's particular spin? The English are very, very keen to get accurate news on Scotland. They place an absolute premium on it. And there are also Scots who are very keen to help them get that. And you will see this particularly through the diplomatic correspondence. In terms of the printed stuff, you have stuff which is both accurate factually, but also about inculcating a particular image of the Stuarts. And so a good example here might be the publications surrounding um, the marriage of James VI and Anna of Denmark. Now, that is factually accurate. Anna has arrived. They have got married. You know, they had a lovely party. All that is true. And we've got the financial evidence and the other diplomatic reports to prove it. That is also propaganda. Because that is also when it reaches England, first in Scotland, it's saying to the Scottish subjects, hey, the king is an adult, he's married, he's managed to get the daughter of a king. This is really good for the country. This shows that he's being a good king. It's you know another Protestant, a Protestant queen, they're going to have Protestant heirs. And in England, that's also attractive. 
Elizabeth's aging. Elizabeth doesn't have an heir. But here's James. He's married to a Protestant. They're going to have Protestant heirs. And look, he's a wealthy, cultured man who's able to organise a fantastic wedding party with all sorts of things. So there's a line as to, um, is it accurate? And there are definitely times when that does matter. There's also a line as to, is this in someone's advantage to spin it? Is it propaganda? And so you can have accurate propaganda. Um, yeah, really interesting question. I hope that kind of begun to begun to answer that. What kind of publications were written about the Earl of Morton's execution in 1581? Were there any yes. propaganda pieces sent out about that event? Yeah, so the Earl of Morton's execution, he's maybe somebody who, even though I love, perhaps not everyone has had enough special time with the Earl of Morton as yet. Um, so the Earl of Morton's a really interesting character. He is the longest serving regent for James the Sixth. He's regent from 1572, the very end of 1572, through until 1579. He then loses power in a coup, but kind of he's able to, he's a little bit, you know, he, he's able to kind of always bounce back. So he bounces back from this and he gets first place in the Privy Council is how it's described. But then he's later, a few years later, accused of complicity in the murder of Lord Darnley. This is 1567. It's probably true, but they're dragging up really, really old news. And it's used to bring him down and get him executed for treason. So Morton's execution for treason is something that is um, really shocking and concerning, especially in England. It's shocking and concerning for the supporters in Scotland. Some of them flee across the border to England. So that's one route for news. Um, All of Morton's supporters, when they flee across the border to England, are bringing that news back. But it's also worrying to the English because Morton's been a massive favourer of alliance with the English. He's really had a pro-English diplomatic policy, very keen on Protestant alignment, and has worked very well with the Elizabethan regime for a long time. So his execution is extremely worrying. And interesting, there is no, interestingly, although they have a lot of news in the English government, they have piles and piles and piles of espionage reports. They have these reports from the Scots who've got into exile, Morton supporters. None of that is made public in the sense of none of that is printed. There are no proclamations. This is something that is closed down. So here we can see an example of the English government having really quite good quality information on news that's happening in Scotland on events in Scotland, where they are deliberately choosing not to let any of that bleed out. What's interesting is in the fictional works that start to emerge later that year, you do occasionally see there's one example I'm thinking of in particular, where we see a character called the Earl of Morton, but he's turning up as a fictional character. So that's maybe a little bit of a hint that more rumours were spreading out. But there's certainly not a kind of, you know, news of today, former regent executed for treason, accused of complicity in the king's murder. That's absolutely not there. Equally, I think, you know, we talk a lot about the Elizabethan espionage regime, the Elizabethan intelligence regime. Like that thing leaks like a sieve. I think if you had, you know, if you had ears to listen and eyes to see in London, you would have been aware of what's happening. That's a tough spot for the historian, right? That literally off the record type of conversation. In her publication, Amy writes that Richard Field, the same man who printed Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis and grew up in Stratford-upon-Avon with the Bard, printed Scottish works for publication in England. Amy, does that mean men like Richard Field are examples of early modern journalists? Were professional printers the ones responsible for gathering and writing Mm. newsworthy information for export out of Scotland, or was it someone else? And tell us what the routes were that Scottish information like poems and other written works were coming to England at this time. Who was behind the impetus to print these things? 
Yeah. Okay. So two really interesting questions there. Um, so the first one about were um, people like Richard Field early modern journalists? I think probably not. I mean, early I mean, Richard Field is basically printing stuff. He's not responsible for sort of the writing or the production. And also people like Richard Field are interested in making a profit. So they will sell things that they think are going to, they're going to print things they think are going to sell and they're going to make money. That's really important for someone like Field. And the two um, Scottish publications he produces, one is um, Lepanto. And this is a poem by James VI, which is celebrating a victory of the uh, Venetian fleet against the Ottoman fleet. And that's clearly going to be of interest to an English audience because they are desperate to find out what their possible future king is like. So a poem written by him is a way in to find that out. The other piece that he prints um, is called The Discovery of the Conspiracy of Scottish Papists. Obviously, the title goes on for like six lines more because it's an early modern book, but that's the short title. And this is, again, also, this is him being canny and being aware that an English audience are going to be interested in what's happened. Now, it's a safe news story in England because it's an anti-Catholic story, right? This is the conspiracy of the Scottish Papists. But we're also introducing an English audience to James VI. This is him defeating a papist conspiracy, a Catholic conspiracy in his own country. So he's scooping up interesting texts, but he is not taking responsibility for them. There's no kind of, you sort of said, who's responsible for this? And this is another way the early modern world is quite different. There's no kind of equivalent of like the BBC's office in Washington or, you know, PBR having an opportunity to, a responsibility to find out what's happening in the EU, kind of get in touch with what's happening in France. This is very much um, a world which is operating on that principle of wanting to sell. I guess that's also common with any kind of modern news media. Absolutely. It's private enterprise and it runs on private networks and private connections. The other player there is the government. The English government, because of its wariness around the English succession, because of its wariness around Elizabeth's marriage, does not like certain things being published. So these printers and these publishers and these people who are receiving the news from Scotland, from France, from wherever else, are always going to be thinking, what can we get away with? Is this something that they're going to crack down on us for? And very, very occasionally, they will have a sense that they can push at the boundaries, but more often they stay within them. And then, of course, you occasionally will get um, William Cecil tapping someone like John Day, a favoured printer of the English government, on the shoulder and kind of saying, you know, look, we'd like to see an edition of this, please, and something will resurface. And we think that's probably what's going on with George Buchanan, one of the kind of anti-Mary Queen of Scots, very famous anti-Mary Queen of Scots writers. So it's effectively a private news economy working around the edges of what is possible and what is pleasing to the government with profit as the thing that's really driving it. What are the routes for um, Scottish affairs traveling down to London? Again, it's these personal networks. Um, you've got some printers working in Scotland, probably um, Vautrolier and Waldegrave are good examples. And they are clearly networked into the London print trade. The Edinburgh print trade is way, 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 way smaller than the London print trade. So there are definitely networks there. There are also official governmental networks. The English diplomats in Scotland, part of their brief is to find out Scottish news and they gather up Scottish news publications. They go to the printers in Edinburgh, they get copies and they tend to get multiple copies, one for Elizabeth, one for William Cecil, her secretary, and they send them down. 
And those are the things where occasionally you'll see Cecil passing it to a favoured printer and saying, right, we'd like a discrete publication of this. So there's, there is an occasional occasional examples of the English government, these really tantalising examples, placing things in the print market. And then we can see official diplomatic channels behind it. But more often, it appears to be a guy who knows a guy who'd married to somebody's aunt, who met a man in a field, who found an interesting book. And sometimes that's helpful, because if you want to say something a bit controversial, you know, protect your sources, a maxim again of modern journalism today. So despite its massive status as a huge city and a world player, still a little bit of that small town rumor mill going on in terms of how people know what about whom. Yes, absolutely right. I think that's a very good way of thinking about it. People very much still enjoying a gossip and who, you know, being very important. So what was the time delay between when events actually occurred and when the news publications reached England? Was there a time frame that constituted current events for Shakespeare's lifetime in terms of how much delay there was between when something happened and when you were hearing about it later? Mm-hmm. So this is a really interesting question, Cassidy. Um, and I can give you, I think, three or four examples that will sort of help you give you a sense of the range. So the marriage of James the Fourth, James the James the Fourth, I'm obsessed with him, James the Sixth, who I'm also obsessed with, and Anna of Denmark. Now, as we said earlier, this is something that's so important for the English people because this is about the succession ultimately to the throne of England as well after 1603. Now, within four days of Anna entering the Scottish capital, so her formal ceremonial royal entry, you know, with the pageants and the Latin poetry and the ambassadors and the big banquets. Within four days, a license has been purchased with the English Stationers Company for a printed account of that. If we're looking at print news, by the way, just as a sort of side note, the Stationers Register, as it's called, is a fantastic source for historians because this is the records of licensed per- licenses purchased for publications. Now, I should note that doesn't mean it's a complete list of publications. Lots of people try and publish things without a license, sometimes just because they want to make a quick buck, sometimes because it's really controversial, sometimes because they're not very good at admin. But this record of licenses purchased for publications, are really it does give us a, a good basis of a list of publications. And and crucially, it gives us precise dates. They often don't have a precise date like a modern newspaper. So there we know that's four days. And yet the birth of their eldest son, it takes two months for that license to show up in the English stationer's register. Does that mean there's a Scottish edition that has already proved popular, has sold out, and some enterprising London printer decides, okay, I'm going to do this. And so the news is still there, but there's more demand. We don't know. So those are examples where we've got Printed books and the stationers registers allow us to do precise dates. What we've also got, though, are these more nebulous, I think, really interesting examples as well, where we have rumours. And that very often means that although you will get a snapshot of something that's happened or a snippet of something that's happened or a version of something that's happened, it can take weeks for an authoritative truth that resembles anything like what actually happened to really sort of reach London. And so here, the assassination of James Stewart, Earl of Murray in 1570, you know, it's a bit of a gruesome one. Um, he bleeds very slowly to death over 12 hours. Each stage of that, like, oh, he looks like he's going to die. Oh, he's perking up a bit. Oh, no, it's really bad. No, no, he, he's he's looking perkier again. Each of those goes back to London and sets the London administration into a panic. And some of those messengers overtake each other. So they're not even sure of what order the letters have left Scotland. So, yeah, it can it, it varies hugely, but it can be very very quick. 
Um, it, it can be a matter of days as that example of Anna's entry and that four-day turnaround from that happening in Edinburgh and a pamphlet appearing in London can show. Many news stories from Scotland were originally written in Scots language, then translated to English when printed for an audience in England. What are some of the surviving news pamphlets that have been translated from Scots? And what did the English writers include in their title pages and prologues that demonstrate the opinion of the English language versus the Scottish tongue for the 16th and 17th century? Yes, this question of languages is an interesting one. Um, And it's one that's still sort of relevant and important um, in Scotland today. I'll start with your kind of idea about English attitudes first, because I think that will kind of help explain what happens later. So I said at the beginning when I was describing the relationship between England and Scotland, that a lot of the English are really keen on this idea of suzerainty. It's the idea that England had overlordship over Scotland. So as part of those arguments, the English will claim that the Scottish tongue is um, just corrupted or is somehow not you know, an imperfect version of English. It's understood as being very closely related to, but somehow not exactly the same as and inferior to English. And you'll see this because very frequently the title page of a Scottish news pamphlet that's translated into um, English will be described not as translated, which suggests like this is a language in its own right and I am making it into another language. It will be things like corrected or moderated. And those will be the types of words. And that obviously doesn't suggest that you are changing two different things, one different thing into another different thing. Correcting suggests you've got something that isn't very good and you are making it better. And so this idea about the hierarchy of language between English and Scots reflects this idea about the English having overlordship over Scotland as well. But I should say that's not universal. There are English visitors to Scotland who will say things like, oh, they talk like the men of the north part of this country. And there are also um, examples of English people who are clearly appreciating Scottish literature. And there's been a lot of work done showing on kind of the circulation of Scots poetry in England in the 15th century and indeed vice versa through manuscript things. But thinking about our century um, and thinking about print, I think the most interesting example for me is is a version of Aesop's fables, which people are sorry, familiar with these sort of these ancient Greek stories, and they're these kind of quite cute animal moral tales. Now, these obviously originally written in Greek, and they are current throughout medieval and early modern Europe as part of that. But in late 15th century Scotland, they were translated out of Greek into Scots by a man called Henderson. Now he dies around 1490. So his book, not printed during his lifetime. There's no printing press in Scotland at this point. But by the late 16th century and the 15th of printed editions that we don't have any trace of. What's then really interesting is that we see later in the 1570s, a translation of Aesop, not out of Greek into English, but out of Henderson's Scots translation into English. And this is a really fascinating publication. It's dedicated to Richard Stoney, one of the tellers of Elizabeth's Exchequer. We don't know much about the person who translated it, one Richard Smith, but he's clearly sort of got some kind of association to the lower echelons um, of government through that. Uh, Smith's dedication to Stoney, the teller of the Exchequer. And we then have this cute sort of poem, which is kind of explaining what he's doing with this work to the reader. And in this, um, Stoney basically says, oh, I decided to go for a walk in St. Paul's Churchyard. So the big book selling place in London. 
where I met Aesop, who was attired bravely after the Scottish fashion and told me that I to translate his work. And Stoney claims that he responds to Aesop saying, you know, kind of basically, uh, you know, English readers list not look that way towards Scottish books. Um, and then he also does the usual rhetorical thing of like, oh, I'll never do such good prose as you. But so I think that's a really interesting example, Cassidy, because on the one hand, we've got an author who clearly really appreciates this Henderson, right? We don't know how he's managed to get a hold of his copy of Henderson. Possibly it's a recent publication, a printed edition, possibly it's an early printed edition. Possibly it's a manuscript that's been knocking around since he was a child. He clearly thinks this is great. Also, he can manage this job. He can't manage the Greek, we have to assume, because he's not going back to the Greek, but he can do the Scots. He really appreciates this, but he's very, very worried that it's a little bit of a hard sell. And he seems to handle this by calling it out and saying things like English readers will hold Scottish books in derision, for example, or they list not look that way. So, Again, kind of, it's very easy to sort of have, it's, I guess this is back to the point we had at the beginning, right? It's very easy to say what's the attitude between England and Scotland and essentialize and make it into kind of two homogenous blobs. Clearly, with Richard Smith, we've got a man who um, has excellent taste in literature, really likes sharing it, but is slightly worried that kind of prejudices about language will get in the way of that. So again, it's complicated. What I would also say is it's quite clear that most English people in this period, if they try, can read and understand Scots. You never see this as a problem with English diplomats coming to Scotland. You never see it as a problem with Scots coming into England. And when you hear accounts of kind of English and Scottish people traveling on the continent and meeting each other, they are clearly conversing in Scots and in English. And you see that even with, for example, Mary, Queen of Scots, meeting English diplomats when she's Queen of France. And they say, you know, she spoke to me in Scottish. I replied to her in English. So, yeah, and it's just to sort of clarify there that they're saying she spoke to me in Scottish. The modern phrase, the modern name for the language is, of course, Scots. But that was a quote from an English diplomat making the common mistake of her calling it Scottish rather than Scots. So, yeah, a very complicated and interesting area there. So what are some of the major events in this period that might constitute major news from Scotland that would have been published about in England for Shakespeare's lifetime? I think you've already mentioned James's marriage, of course, and the birth of their first child. But I wonder if there's any other events we should put under that heading when we're studying the life of William Shakespeare. Yeah, definitely. So looking at that period from kind of 1564 through to 1616, what we actually see is a really big sea change in English attitudes towards Scotland from the government. And remember what I was saying earlier, that this is always a game about what can I get away with? I do not want to annoy the secretary. I do not want to annoy the queen. And so in the 1560s, to the period where Mary, Queen of Scots, comes back from France, gets married, gives birth to her heir, And the last two of those events are commemorated, um, we think, in print. Um, And as indeed is her first marriage commemorated in print um, in both Paris and in Edinburgh, Mary is so threatening to Elizabeth that basically there's a print black on that. There are no, there's no evidence that English editions of the poem celebrating James's birth are produced. Now, that's not surprising because Elizabeth starts complaining when Mary uses any kind of rhetoric that suggests that James or she might succeed to the English throne. So, for example, any mention of King Arthur, because King Arthur used to be king of all of Britain, the whole island. And the English are very hot on cracking down on that. So it's not surprising that during the 1560s, there's a news blackout. Mary's deposition, 
likewise. There's a huge printed commentary on that in Scotland. We know it's getting to England because English diplomats are sending it to England. We know it has wide circulation in Scotland because there are reports on this kind of you know, thing. People said, people, um, I think from more than the English diplomats say, you know, the words of this ballad are in every man's mouth and its message is in every man's heart. So this has wide circulation and yet it's not reprinted. Note that's not saying rumours don't cross the border in Berwick and, you know, someone doesn't send a letter from Aberdeen to their pal down in Norwich or whatever. But talking about the printed editions, absolutely nothing. The sea change is 1570. Now, this is really significant. The year before, there's been the Northern Rising in England, when Catholic earls have risen up to protest about their political alienation domestically and also about Mary's imprisonment. Some of them have crossed the border into Scotland and they've been captured by the Regent Murray. What this does is it gives him a trump card. Up to this point, Elizabeth has been really reluctant to acknowledge that Mary is deposed. The rest of her Privy Council are like, this is fantastic. The Scottish Catholic Jezebel is imprisoned. What more could you ask for, Majesty? Elizabeth is very concerned about the sacrality of monarchy, and we see that right in the reaction she has to some of Shakespeare's plays. So this concern about the sacred nature of kingship means she's very concerned about Mary's deposition. But the arrival of her rebels in Scotland and the fact that the Scottish rebels, as she has seen them up to this point, now have physical control of her rebels means she's going to acknowledge them. So at that point, she starts to acknowledge that James VI is king of Scotland, that the people who are calling themselves regents to rule on his behalf are, are indeed regents. And so that's the moment when we start to see the publication of Scottish news stories in England. And this starts with the ballads surrounding the assassination of the Earl of Murray. I said earlier it was horrible and dreadful and he bled to death over 12 hours. More relevantly to these publications, it's the first recorded instance of a head of state being shot with a handgun. So it's it's hugely newsworthy on a number of levels. And a couple of the publications that um, appear in Edinburgh get a London edition as well. And there's there's evidence when you read other contemporary commentaries, people seem to have access to different, different, what different, different ballads that were produced in Scotland. So that's hugely, hugely important. We then see a big uptick from 1580, and this fits with more with a broader news pattern, right? The Scottish news we kind of see need to see in the context of um, all the international news that's appearing in England. Um, and from 1580, there is a massive uptick in all kinds of news publication, and the Scottish stuff fits with that trend. And within that, there are these publications about James's um, dynastic success, his marriage and his heir, which we've already mentioned, as you say. But we also see a series of publications which are um, basically James surviving a conspiracy, whether this is a Catholic conspiracy, as with the Spanish Blanks affair, or an ultra-Protestant conspiracy, as we have with the Gowrie conspiracy of 1600. We also see the news of the North Berwick witch trials um, appearing in England. And this is a really interesting one. So um, effectively, the story is that while James was on the ship back from Denmark with Anna, and there's a claim that a group of um, witches in North Berwick raised a storm to try and sink the ship. And the rationale for this, apparently, when the king questions them, is they say that Satan has said to him, the king of Scots is the greatest enemy I have on earth, and so I must sink him. And of course, you know, God protects this exceptionally godly monarch. He gets home safe. The witches are caught, etc. So there's a huge amount there. Going back to our point earlier, our conversation earlier about propaganda. I think James believes this to be true. 
I have my doubts as to whether there were a group of women who could raise a storm in North Berwick at this time, but that's perhaps a separate conversation. But there is a belief that this is true and that's what matters for this period. It also has a propaganda value, right? If one of these women has actually said, Satan said, the King of Scots is the greatest enemy I have on earth, like that is what you want your future subjects to be reading. So that's a really interesting news production. There are some woodcuts on it. So there are images to accompany the story. If you can access a copy of this, if you just put it in online, you'll get some of them. It's quite a funny story because one of the witches isn't very good and makes a love potion. It's a male witch. It's a love potion he wants to give to a maid, but he ends up dropping it on a cow. So there's a woodcut of this infatuated cow chasing this male witch around, which is always good fun. So there's a lot going on there. In terms of thinking about Scottish news in England, There is no evidence of a Scottish publication, but this English edition says on it, according to the Scottish copy. And when you read through, there are references to our king, our king, our king, our king. That would only be acceptable in a Scottish book, right? Elizabeth would not be happy with that. So I think this is really strong evidence of a Scottish original that's made its way down to England about a really important piece of Scottish news. You know, King survives witchcraft assassination attempt. Yeah, I'd I'd buy that, frankly. I think most people I know would. It's got some great pictures in it, fab. But it also shows us about this hidden history of news circulation between the two countries. So, yeah, so I think kind of as the 1580s and 90s progress, we see more news from Scotland. We also have a very canny monarch in Scotland who wants to try and sell himself when and where possible to his English subjects, his future English subjects, without antagonising Elizabeth. So these kinds of news stories, like James is a good king who God defends from witches, papists, ultra Protestants, whatever, that that very much helps articulate that message south of the border. In Amy's publication, you can read so many details about surviving documents that reveal details like England's response to Mary, Queen of Scots, marrying Lord Darnley and the publications related to Moray's assassination, the army England placed in Scotland and so much more. There's a lot to unpack there. And Amy's publication is a great place to begin when you want to explore the topic of published news from Scotland to England. And it is free to read online with a gesture subscription. So I'll link you to her work in the show notes so you can read that. Amy, I know we would love to unpack a lot of the history that that you've touched on here today. And I'd like to ask you to recommend some resources for us. If we're new to this topic, where should we begin to learn more? So I would recommend if you want to look at the surviving Scottish books, the oldest catalogue online. Uh, now, British um, or UK-based listeners, uh, we have a discount supermarket called Aldi. Um, it's it's spelt exactly like that. So don't tell, just type in oldest catalogue, type in oldest catalogue, National Library of Scotland. And that will get you through to a list of all the surviving um, Scottish books printed in the 16th century. So I would 100% recommend that you start there. I'd also recommend you have a look, and this seems slightly counterintuitive to news because I'm going to suggest you look at a history site, but the relationship between news and history is really interesting. There's a really good resource which talks about, it's a, it's a version of, an, a free online searchable version of Hollinshed's Chronicles. This is a key English history publication. Now, this is super interesting because when you read through the material on Scotland, you can work out what Scottish stuff was available to those authors. Now, they're looking at it uh, you know, it, it, it is history. They are writing a history, but the sources they are using for their history allow us to reverse engineer what news pamphlets were available 
in England about Scotland. Um, and so that website, um, the Holland Church Chronicles project, is really helpful and useful to provide a way in to thinking about that. So yeah, those I think would be my sort of top two from different perspectives. We will link to both of these in the show notes for today's episode. So hang on at the end for the URL for where to find those. Now, Amy, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Okay, thank you. Um, now, I have actually been thinking about this possibly harder than all the other questions, because I feel like this is the one where people are really, really going to judge me. Part of me wants to say I'd like to take a copy of the book I'm currently writing, because then I would have finished it. And I could, <laughs> it would be a nice marker that I was no longer writing it. But I, I'm guessing that that also sounds a bit solipsistic. So I won't say that. And also, I won't want to read it. I was wondering, would I be allowed the complete works of Agatha Christie? I think that, that would be, yeah, we can let yeah, you have the complete works. Thank you. That's excellent. Because if that all has her plays and her poetry, and that's a nice mix. And I think kind of that sort of classic sort of early 20th century detective fiction would be a nice balance to some of maybe the meatier, heavier, more sort of life, death, tragedy stuff in Shakespeare. So yeah, complete works of Agatha Christie, please. I will think that's a great selection. Absolutely. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Yeah, well, I mean, I've just said I want to finish this book so that I could don't have to read it anymore. <laughs> but no, it is an exciting project. Um, so I am currently working on a book on the wars of the 1540s between England and Scotland. So this is basically Mary, Queen of Scots, came to the throne age six, six days old. That is, people say six, well, that's not too young. But no, six days old is pretty young. And Henry VIII basically immediately tried to invade Scotland with the hope that he could capture Mary marry her to Edward VI and force union. So all these themes about like English control that we've been talking about throughout our conversation are there. But what I'm trying to do is rather than doing a kind of military history, and there's been a lot of really good military history on this, like if you want to know kind of how heavy the guns were and how hard they could fire, there is a book for you out there. What I'm more interested in is thinking about the way this war and the experience of being invaded affected life in Scotland. What did that mean if you were a woman trying to run a business in Perth? Well, potentially quite a lot because the English blockade the river that leads to your town. So that's going to really disrupt your business. What would that mean if you are trying to trade with continental Europe out of Aberdeen, one of our North Sea ports? Again, quite a lot because the ports are going to be blockaded and your tax bill increased. Plus, in addition to the fact there's invasion, war and an army, there's also hyperinflation. Um, and I'm afraid I'm not sure what your inflation stats in the US are at the moment. But here, there's an awful lot of price increases. So this is a very, very current topic in the UK. And alongside these armies moving around, there's the risk of plague. So plague is running rife through the country. So really, how is this war, which brings with it an increase in prices, an increase in taxes, so a really dire economic situation, encourages the spread of infectious disease, plague. And the only way they've really got of fighting that is by locking people down into their homes. So very relevant to us in the immediate experience of sort of post-COVID lockdown. How does this affect governing Scotland? What, what is Scotland like after this war? What kind of country is it? And how long does it take to recover? And then the big question there is, if we think this war of the 1540s had a huge impact, which I do, and we think Scotland hadn't really recovered by 1560, which I also do, how does that then affect what happens for Mary, Queen of Scots when she's back and she's ruling Scotland? 
I know we've enjoyed so much exploring the history of Scottish news with you today that we'll very much look forward to reading your next publication on the life during war in Scotland for the 16th century as well. And seeing the story of Mary, Queen of Scots, make another appearance because her life is more exciting than a, a soap opera drama, I think, most of the time. It always surprises me they haven't actually made a proper soap opera of Mary, Queen of Scots. I, I am with you there. It just seems like it was made for TV. TV producers, if you're listening, call me and Cassidy right now. We're both free and have reasonable rates. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Amy Blakeway, for being here today and sharing this history with us. This has been a really neat conversation. I've enjoyed having you visit. Thank you very much. Hope to come back soon. I've gathered up some visual elements as well as more in-depth research links for you that go along with our conversation today, including some of the woodcuts and that amorous cow that's chasing the male witch around that Amy mentioned today, along with some more information on Mary, Queen of Scots, William Cecil, and some other of the names of key people in today's episode that you may not be familiar with or might want to know more about. We have all kinds of in-depth history packed into the show notes for today's episode so you can explore further if you heard something today that sounds interesting to you. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 301. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP301. That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. To say thank you for powering our show here each week, patrons get access to special insider content like over 150 additional episodes of our show not available on public listening platforms, along with video versions of our podcast and printable content like lesson plans, worksheets, crossword puzzles, history guides, and other resources that coordinate with Shakespeare's plays and with our show, along with a whole collection of digital history activity kits that work like science labs for Shakespeare. Shakespeare history. It's printable guides that let you cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. It's all kind of bonus history that lets you step into the 17th century and explore a piece of Shakespeare's life for yourself. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.